I'm sure you've heard the phrase, you can't change other people, you can only change yourself. Well, it's not true. In fact, if you're a leader or a manager, it's your obligation to change other people, to help them become better at what they do, to become stronger. And if you care about the people in your life, then it's your longing to help them change in ways that support their own growth. This is the subject of my newest book, which I wrote with my good friend Howie Jacobson. It's called You Can Change Other People, The Four Steps to Help Your Employees colleagues, even family up their game. It's based on my coaching methodology that I've worked on over the past 30 years, brought to you in a practical, step-by-step format that you can start using immediately. You can get it wherever books are sold. To download a sample chapter, either in written form or audio version, visit bregmanpartners.com forward slash new book. That's one word, bregmanpartners.com forward slash new book. And if you've already enjoyed You Can Change Other People, please consider leaving a review on Amazon to help others just like you discover the book. Now, on to today's episode. Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today, I'm delighted we have Annie Murphy-Paul. She has written most recently the book, The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. Annie is an acclaimed science writer. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, Scientific American. Uh, she's currently a fellow in New America's Learning Sciences Exchange. And, uh, and I was fascinated by, by the idea of this book. And, and I won't explain it. We'll let Annie explain it. I think she's more qualified. Uh, and then we'll engage in a conversation with her. Annie, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Peter. I'm so glad to be here. So first of all, what I, I know that 20 years ago, Andy Clark, David Chalmers wrote this article, the, the Extended Mind, asking questions of where does the mind stop and the rest of the world begin? And what you write in your book is that they argue that the main, uh, that the brain does not stop at the standard demarcations of skin and skull, rather it's an extended system, a coupling of biological organisms and external resources. So your book, in a sense, if the if the mind extends to the world, your book in a sense, is an extension of the paper uh, that, that, um, that they wrote. Is that, am I thinking about this correctly? I, I think it is. Yes. Yeah. So when I first read that paper by the two philosophers you mentioned, Clark and Chalmers, it really struck me as being um, an amazingly transformative, big idea that could pull together all these strands of research that I'd been sort of collecting and following in my work as a science writer, a science writer who focuses on learning and cognition. And um, yes, I did set out to write the book as a kind of, um, well, as I say, as I say in the book, I wanted to operationalize the idea of the extended mind because, you know, as you might expect from an idea that was proposed by two philosophers in an academic journal, it was this kind of high concept, you know, like idea, ivory tower kind of idea, but it immediately seemed to me to have all these practical implications and applications. And so I set out to ask and answer the question, if the mind extends beyond the skull, if the, if our thinking processes are spread across our bodies and physical spaces and our relationships with other people, what does that mean for the thinking that we do in everyday life? And how can we use that idea to improve the thinking that we do in everyday life. 
So explain this idea of the extended mind. Andy Clark, who really was the one who went on to elaborate on this idea, he says that the way we think about thinking right now, uh, conventionally, traditionally, is brain bound. In other words, we imagine that thinking happens just inside the skull of one individual. And that really limits us because when we need to solve a hard problem or come up with an ingenious solution, really our only option is to work that brain harder and harder until it comes up with, you know, with, with the answer we're looking for. And I think we've all found during the pandemic when we've been kind of brains in front of screens for hours and hours a day, that's actually not the uh, optimal way of, of thinking. There's so many other resources that can enrich and augment our thinking that unfortunately we've, we've sometimes been cut off from during the pandemic, like interacting with other people and visiting new and stimulating places and even feeling free to move our bodies or, um, you know, not just sort of sit there and, and work and work and work, which is, it, it turns out is not the best way to, um, to treat the brain. We actually want to help the brain out by bringing in all these external outside the brain resources. So, so let, I, I want to, there's so much I want to go into. So I want to go into this, but I, I do have, you brought up the pandemic and, and it made me just think one of the things that I'm hearing and one of the arguments that that people, employees offer to senior leadership when they're saying, we don't want to go back to work, you know, don't want our commute. They're, they're saying, hey, we've been more productive mm -hmm. during the pandemic than ever. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. in terms of our brains, the, the work of our brains translating into deliverables for the organizations, that has been by a lot of measures more productive than ever. Mm -hmm. So how mm -hmm. is that so if our brains are mm -hmm. suboptimized? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I don't think that's been everyone's experience across the board, but you're right that absolutely that some people have, many people have found that without the commute, without um, all that goes into going into an office and being distracted in the office, that they're more productive. And I think that gets at another aspect of the extended mind, which is that the extended, the theory of the extended mind assumes that the biological brain on its own is actually quite limited. You know, we're always hearing about how amazing the brain is, how extraordinary, how it's the most complex object in the universe and all this stuff, which is true. But it's also true that the brain, the biological brain is um, an evolved organ, you know, that is that evolved to do things very different from what we ask it to do today in terms of engaging with abstract concepts and symbols. Um, and so it needs a lot of help to do the kinds of tasks that we expect of it in our modern world. And one of those limits that the biological brain has is to be distracted, um, especially by uh, any kind of novelty or change in our environment, especially by social stimuli, anything to do with people, you know, our attention is just automatically going to gravitate to those things. And that's why the open office is such a terrible invention and such a hard place to get really any work done. So I think one thing that people are finding when they're working at home is actually predicted by the theory of the extended mind, which is we need space, we need walls. Uh, essentially to protect us from the limitations of our own brains. And I think that may be one reason why people are feeling more productive. That's interesting because the mind is extended uh, that, that we will be sort of less productive if we're distracted by a bunch of things. And so maybe productivity goes up, but things like innovation, which, uh, you know, or collaboration or things that 
you know, the extended brain is an, you know, advantages us in those things probably end up going down. Absolutely. And I, you know, I go back to this um, concept that some psychologists have developed called intermittent collaboration. What they've found is that people who are working on their own all the time come up with um, a few good, a few really great ideas, and then a bunch of losers because they're not, you know, they're not bouncing their ideas off of other people. And then people who are in touch with their colleagues and interacting with their colleagues continually, they come up with ideas that are a bunch of ideas that are all kind of okay, you know, because they, they we kind of sink to the lowest common denominator that everyone can agree on and, and achieve consensus on. It's those people who sort of oscillate between those two states, being alone sometimes, working alone sometimes, and then collaborating and communicating with other people that come up with the, the best of both worlds. So I'm wondering if in this new world that we're developing as we speak in terms of you know how we're, figu- we're figuring out how we work, if we can adopt that hybrid working style of working at home sometimes, coming into the office sometimes to support that kind of intermittent collaboration so that you work you have that kind of deep immersive work at home where you can be work undistracted, but then you go into the office specifically to have those kinds of social interactions that are also important yeah. for thinking well. There's a lot of there's a lot of talk about that. There's also talk about this hybrid model where you're working at home, there is no office, but you know, once a quarter, maybe even once a month, you all get together at some mm-hmm. fun place, you know. Yeah. And- and, and you're collaborating awesome. and you're thinking and you're meeting, yeah. but it's like, you know, you go to Mexico, you got to like, it's still cheaper than, you know, having a, a huge headquarters somewhere, but yeah. you know, you're traveling to these different kind of fun. Let's, let's have our meeting in Costa Rica and we'll get together for four days and, and, and see what we can come up with. So, you know, that's good to that's me. <laughs> something people are very excited about. Yeah. So here's a question that I have, and, and, and I want to make sure we get into sort of the operationalizing piece of this, right? You talk a lot about how the mind interacts with its surroundings, with the body, with the environment. How is that separation? I think you also say it's a false dichotomy. And and I and I struggled with that notion because you know, you could say the mind is extended, or you could say the mind is impacted, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe they're the same things. Mm-hmm. But I think mm-hmm. there's lots of ways in which, you know. This is, I mean, what I love about this conversation is this is a conversation, this is a deep spiritual conversation around mm-hmm. like individuality and community and the ego and, you know, the the communal and, you know, am I an individual or are we all connected? Like mm-hmm. this is, you know, there's a profound conversation happening in this book. Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder where that line is mm-hmm. of like, actually the brain does and the mind ends here. And the environment starts here, mm-hmm. right? Like there, there, are, there is a separation. There is, it's mm-hmm. not a false dichotomy. It's an actual dichotomy. And yet one impacts the other. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. is it truly a false dichotomy? And, and maybe mm-hmm. even my question doesn't really make it make practical operationalized difference. Uh-huh. But I found myself, uh-huh. you know, kind of wondering about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the strongest case for saying that the mind is genuinely extended and not just discrete and then impacted on from the outside would be, uh, the part of the extended mind theory that has to do with embodied cognition, because it really is the case that thinking happens not only above the neck, not only in the brain, but the entire body contributes to the process of thinking. And I think that's something that scientists have been late to recognize because there's such an entrenched 
belief in Western culture that mind and body are separate, that mind is elevated and cerebral and, you know, the sort of crystalline sphere and body, the body is grubby and animal and um, irrational and ungovernable, you know, and has nothing to contribute to intelligent thought. We know that that's incorrect, that the body is intimately involved in everything that happens with our thinking processes. So I think there you really, I think there I'm, I'm on very safe ground. Yeah. So I'm going to, so, so we talked, you know, you sort of talk about the body, the environment and relationships. So I'm going to give you that. Like I agree a hundred percent, like there, you know, like our bodies think, and you know, there's this, there is interesting and I, I don't, you know, we don't necessarily need to go into it. I'm, I'm, I haven't read any of the research about like our gut thinks like we have microbiome and it's in, mm-hmm. But let's just let's just say like, yeah, there is this total false dichotomy between the brain and the body. Um, How about the how about the mind and the environment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, here I like to um, think about the metaphors that animate the way we think about the brain. Um, You know, one of the most pervasive metaphors is the brain as computer. And it's it's interesting to me that we, you know, humans invented the computer in the middle of the last century. And then we started analogizing ourselves to this thing that we had created, you know, but the brain, the brain is actually quite different from computers. And one of the major differences is that while computers operate the same way, no matter where they are, humans and the human brain is really exquisitely sensitive to context. So we think differently depending on where we are. And as you say, I'm not sure it makes such a difference to, to um, pin down whether the mind is, you know, thinking processes are happening out in our surroundings or whether they're simply affected by our surroundings, but they definitely are affected by by our surroundings got it and yeah and maybe the question is not the the to your point like you know we could debate it but it's an intellectual philosophical debate versus Mm -hmm. what does it mean for us you know and Mm -hmm. should we be sitting at a desk or should we be walking in nature and Mm -hmm. um one more sort of philosophical question which is how do we know when to trust our minds like Mm -hmm. who's figuring out about the power of thinking outside the brain is that the brain Mm -hmm. You know, how does the brain actually extend? You know, like, how do we know about anything outside the brain if not the yeah. brain? Like, like yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. Yeah. You know, one thing, one less, I've reported on psychology for 20 years now. And one thing that, one lesson I've taken away from that is that we we often don't know ourselves. We don't know what's best for ourselves. You know, things that we assume will work are often counterproductive. So that's why we have to, you know, that's why I I see the value of science and of evidence and empiricism. Um, So to take that outside view of ourselves, I agree is really hard to do. Um, I don't know that I, I don't know that I have an answer for that, except (laughs) that the brain is, I don't ever want to seem to be suggesting that the brain isn't central to thinking. I just want to say that the brain doesn't do it on its own. The brain draws in these outside the brain resources to help it with its operation. Right, right. Yeah, I've, I've often wondered, I mean, I've often, you know, as I, you know, I sort of sit and I, I remember one of my first m- most self-aware moments when I was a kid was sitting there and realizing, oh my God, I'm a person. Like, <laughs> like there have been like, you know, I don't know, 120 mm-hmm. something billion people mm-hmm. in the world since existence. I'm one of them. Yeah. I can move my arms and I could, I'm having this conversation with you. Like I'm, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a person. Like, what does that mean? You know, like, yeah. it, you know, it's this, it's this very, 
Uh, I don't know. And then, and then, and then the next question, and I had this question when I was older, this was not a six-year-old observation. This next one was, who's the I that's saying mm-hmm. I am a person? Like, mm-hmm. who's that I? Like, what, mm-hmm. you know, like, is that my mind? Is that like, who's <laughs> asking the question? And who, who am I asking the question to? Like this is this is sounding like a talking head song. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. But I think that you know, like your your um, your book raises these questions for me because it's you know it, you know where it's fun to have a science book that is also asking these sort of I think deep philosophical questions, which is mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. existential. All right, yeah. let's go to the operational idea of the extended <laughs> mind. Why don't you walk us through? You know, you're talking about thinking with our bodies, thinking with our surroundings, thinking with our relationships. Why don't you you know kind of talk about each one? Why don't you? Read your book from start to finish for us. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, but why, right. Don't you, why don't you talk us through each one a little bit so that people have a sense as to what you mean by that? You've already talked a little bit about the body and, mm-hmm. and maybe a couple of things that we can do to enhance our, um, our connection with, you know, the extended mind. Sure, whoever, sure. Whoever our whatever, is. Whatever right. that is. Yeah. Right. yeah. Well, okay. So we do know that there is this thing called interoception, that scientists word for what we would call, normal people would call gut feelings. And I think this is one of the really um, practical takeaways from, from this research is that our inter- the internal signals that there's this constant flow of internal information being um, served up to us all the time that you know, actually we, we tend to actively suppress and push aside when we feel like we have to get something done. You know, we have to power through and kind of uh, override the body signals. And that's a mistake because the body is actually alerting us to this wealth of non-conscious information that we have stored in our minds, but we don't have conscious access to. It's actually the body with its internal signals that kind of taps us on the shoulder and says, you know, hey, you've encountered this situation before, and this is uh, this is how you're feeling about it because this is how it went last time. And that all of that is information that if we're not attuned to our bodies and that internal world, then that we're missing out on. So um, I, I talk- just a quick question about yeah, that? Sure. I, mm-hmm. I find that in psychology, one of the things that we often try to do, I say we, I'm not a psychologist, but one of the things that we often try to do is override that, meaning to say, mm-hmm. I have always felt this way. I have this gut. I, it goes back to my question about what do you trust? And it's a pattern and I need to break out of that pattern. Like if mm-hmm. I just go with my gut, then I'm going to stay in the pattern of the past. Mm-hmm. And what I want to do is break out of that. So I'm curious, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, how the mind interacts with the, that kind of a sort of disruptive, you know, engagement with an extended mind that's being yeah. impacted by things. Yeah. Well, it's certainly certainly the case that our gut feeling, our in, our interoceptive uh, cues don't always steer us in the right direction. That's but that's right. that's an argument for being more intentional about um, paying attention to what's going in, uh, on inside. Um, you know, and I talk in the book about some tools for doing that, like engaging in a body scan uh, practice, which is borrowed from mindfulness meditation. You know, bringing non judgmental open-minded curiosity to whatever is arising from within. And so just to be clear for people who don't know, so a body scan would be getting really quiet and start to feel what's going, what, what am I feeling in my feet? What am mm-hmm. I feeling in my shins? What am I feeling? And just going through the body and feeling everything. And then you go, oh, that fear that I'm feeling about this mm-hmm. next move, I actually feel it on my left side below my abdomen. Like mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, like, and, and you could begin to 
disassociate actually a little bit from from the feeling as opposed to you know associate with it yeah you can you can gain a little bit of distance or, or detachment distance, by being yeah. aware of it rather than being fully identified with it and another right. step in that direction is simply labeling it and giving it a name and saying i'm feeling a tightness in my chest you know and um that actually does a lot to to dial down our physiological arousal if we're feeling um, anxious or worked up and simply labeling it um, ha interestingly has a really strong effect on the nervous system just sort of calming us um, so that that's a benefit in itself. But then I also talk about tracking your interoceptive sensations and how they relate to the decisions you make and how those decisions turn out in something like an interoceptive journal where you're actually kind of taking note of how you feel on the inside when you're making decisions and then later matching that up with you know the decisions that you you made and how they turned out in the sense of um learning from what your body is telling you and when your body is steering you correctly and when your body might be kind of giving you false signals but it, right. the i think you know, as I say, it's not something, the body signals aren't something to be followed in an uncritical way, but there's certainly something to pay attention to. Right. And I mean, I imagine that unconscious bias concepts are all sitting in the body in many ways, like that, mm -hmm. you know, that's part of the mind that we make decisions based on, mm -hmm. you know, interceptive responses to patterns we developed, you know, at a different time with different, you know, teachings kind of. Right, right. Okay, absolutely. great. So let's go to the environment. Yeah. So, you know, there's a couple of really uh, big pieces there. One is, is time spent outdoors and in nature and what, and the enormous effect that that can have on uh, our attention, our ability to focus. And, you know, this like gut feelings, this also struck me at first as a little bit like a little uh, bit of superstition maybe, or like a old, an old wives tale or kind of woo woo, like, you know, go hug a tree kind of, kind of advice. But when I, as with interoception, when I came to understand the mechanism behind its effects on our, our mental state, it started to make a lot more sense to me. You know, the fact that we spend upwards of 90% of our time indoors or in cars is a really recent development. Like, you know, in terms of the, the span of human history, we, our ancestors spent all their time outside. We evolved in, the, in, in nature. And our brains process the kind of information that's available in nature, the kind of stimuli that we encounter in nature really effortlessly and easily without any kind of cognitive load, without any kind of strain. And so spending time in nature is this way of refilling the tank of our attentional resources, so to speak, so that when we return to our office or our workplace, we can uh, we, we have all those attentional resources restored and refreshed because they get drained really quickly inside and doing the kind of intense focused work that that most of us do at work these days. You know, it, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking like even the way you're talking and we're thinking um, makes the assumption that the point of walking in nature is to enable us to come back to the desk and be productive mm -hmm. and focused. Mm -hmm. and, and I, and I, I want to question that because I, I have that, I'm not putting that on you. Like I, you know, I was approaching this conversation with the same kind of uh, focus and, and I'm thinking, you know, given that the mind extends to the environment, there is value in and of itself to being in the environment and letting the mind stretch. And like that, 
Like ultimately our productivity is just one piece of our experience of life as human beings on this planet. And now I'm getting woo woo, but I, <laughs> but I, I think it's, you know, I think the people I know who are happiest are ones who have everything in perspective and the mm -hmm. walk in the woods, Sylvia mm -hmm. Borstein, who tells, who's a Buddhist teacher who tells the story of her grandfather going on walks and, and she, when she was young and she said to her grandfather, what do you think about when you go on walks? And he looked at her and he goes, I'm, I walk. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not about mm -hmm. what I'm thinking about. Like, I'm not mm -hmm. thinking when I'm walking, I'm uh -huh. walking. Like there's value. If the mind extends to the environment, then there's value to the mind being home in the environment at whatever environment that is. I, I think that's absolutely true. It reminds me of um, a fellow writer of mine, Scott Carney, whose book I'm reading right now. And he says in it, um, maybe the point of life is the experience of being alive. And I think um, the experience of being alive is something we encounter, especially keenly and acutely when we're outside. Um, and I do think it has something to do with the fact that it connects us to this ancient heritage of, of being human. Um, I'll just, I have to throw in just one more scientific factoid here, which is that the things that the brain processes really effortlessly and easily, it finds pleasant. It, it We automatically kind of tag that with like a, um, a positive feeling. So that's another, and I'm not saying that's the reason to go outside, but of course it's something that all of us experience when we go outside, that it's sort of mood elevating, it feels good. And that's right. reason enough, I think, to step outside. Okay, so let's talk about the third, which is relationships. Yes, so this... Um, this piece of the extended mind theory sort of takes on the the cult of the 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 lone genius that is so prominent in our culture. You know, the idea that great men have great ideas on their own, and um, looking at evidence that, especially in recent years, uh, the information we encounter is so abundant, expertise has become so specialized, our our problems and our challenges are so wickedly complex that one person is no longer, if they ever were, um, no, one mind is no longer adequate to solve these problems and attack these um, these issues. What we need to do is, is think collectively and achieve a state of a kind of group mind, but that's not something that we're really taught to do. It's, it, um, it's, it can be a frustrating kind of enterprise as any, any student asked to engage in a group project um, can attest or, or lots of work people who, professionals who work on teams can attest. Well, also, I wanna, I wanna include in this conversation the, you know, the, I'm, I'm, I don't know why particularly, I mean, I think your book lends to it. I'm particularly philosophical in this conversation, but you look at the broader world, the divisiveness in which we're living. And you say, you know, it actually seems like relationships are impacting the mind antagonistically as much as communally. Like mm. we're, we're right now in communities where two, two minds meet and they're not meeting. Like, yeah. you know, they're fighting and then they go off and, and they separate. Yes. Uh, so I'm yes. sort of curious about uh, if you can weave that into. How yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the modern world offers increasingly few opportunities to engage in that kind of group mind, even as we need to be engaging that group mind more and more. For example, we spend more and more time online, of course, and there's research showing that we attribute less mind to the people of, uh, to the, uh, the personage of, of people that we encounter online than someone we meet in the flesh. We think of them as less of a full-bodied person and more of a 
you know, more of a two-dimensional person, which makes sense. And then at the same time, as we're spending less time with uh, people in person, we're also doing less of the things that our traditional institutions have led us to do, for example, engage in synchronous movement. You know, if you think about churches or militaries or organizations where people move together in similar ways at similar times, that turns out to be this biological hack that um, allows people to feel like um, my body is moving in the same way at the same time. Maybe I'm sort of, you know, not so separate from these other people. I'm kind of with them or like them. And that allows people to think together and cooperate together more easily. But we don't often have those kinds of experiences in modern life. Yeah, there's these Japanese corporate practices where everybody's outside and they're do- and and you know they're doing the same movement all together. Or you think yeah. of class, or you think of uh, um, you know Tai Chi, or everybody's doing mm-hmm. these like same same movements in the same way. That's so interesting. And in our American individualist mm-hmm. society, we're we're antagonistic to that idea. Like, no, if you're moving that way, I'm going to move differently. <laughs> right. 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 We're so anti-conformity and yeah, but um, but actually, and this is something that is that turns up in the research and in, in uh, uh, accounts from history and, and people's personal lives all the time. There's a kind of ecstatic feeling and a, a joyfulness that people get from joining a bigger group. And that's also something that we're missing out on with our, in our, you know, commitment to individualism. What are other ways? I'm very interested in this relationship piece because I think one of the biggest challenges to, you know, like we're to life is that sense of feeling alone, right? Mm-hmm, and and mm-hmm. the sense that, you know, we feel like people don't understand us or we're, you know, like we, you know, and, and I think that's why we sort of, you know, Facebook feeds tend to gravitate towards telling you the information you want to hear because it's like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. What are what are other ways that we can um, extend our minds to each other in a way mm-hmm. that helps us to feel that we're not alone, even, even maybe in with people that we disagree with? Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of value in so thinking routines that involve social that involve our social brains and our social selves. And I, you know, this is another kind of um cultural bias that I I want to take on in this book, which is that somehow social life and intellectual life are separate and even opposed. You know, like you 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 engage your brain at work, but then maybe you'll go out for a drink after work. You know, we we treat them as separate and distinct. Right. But human beings are fundamentally social and we're social all the time. That doesn't get turned off just because we're at school or in the office. And so I think the more we can incorporate social activities like storytelling and debating and arguing and teaching other people, the more we can leverage those in the service of thinking, the more we harness this um, innate human power that kind of we're kind of leaving on the table right now because we think of social life as kind of frivolous. I'm curious. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious about other ways that we'd like to me, I'm thinking rituals. Like I think of mm-hmm. my, you know, like I'm, I'm Jewish and I think of Shabbat dinners, Friday night mm-hmm. dinners that we mm-hmm. have. And we're saying the same prayers and we're eating mm-hmm. together. Like the mm-hmm. rituals that whether people are Jewish or not, who are part, you know, who, who are part of our community come over for Shabbat dinner. We all participate in that same ritual. Uh, right. and, and it absolutely like I'm, I'm seeing now, and it's sort of why you say with kids, you know, to, to give them rituals and routine and that's mm-hmm. sort of a safety. And I realize how that, 
is part of the extended mind of social fabric connection. What I'm I'm curious of other I'm sort of fascinated I'm 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 holding on to this concept a little bit because it feels really important mm-hmm. in these times. Yeah. Some other ways to 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 get that you know to extend the mind to each other socially. Yeah. Well, so psychologists talk about this concept they call entitivity, which is like how much does a group of people feel like an entity unto itself? And another word they use for, you know, entitivity is a little bit of a mouthful. So they also talk about groupiness. Like how do you get a sense of groupiness? How do you evoke that in a, in a group of, of, of individuals? And some of the ways that um, groupiness can be created are just what you said, having engaging in rituals together, engaging in synchronous movement uh, together, and even eating together is a kind of synchronous movement. You're all kind of, you know, making the same motions at the same time. Um, having emotional experiences together, which again was traditionally a big part of people's lives in in churches and other kinds of organizations, but lots of us don't um, have that experience anymore. Even in movie theaters, we're like streaming a, a, a movie at home alone, you know. Interestingly, back to that question of, of that matter of, of rituals, it turns out that sharing meals together, and not surprisingly, is an especially powerful way of creating bonds among people. My favorite little factoid here is that um, when people, research has found that when people um, eat family style, like sharing from the same dishes, um, that uh, that effect is, is emphasized. And when people um, eat very spicy food, their, their, their physiology is... Um, is activated, you know, you, you actually, you actually, your heart beats a little faster. You might sweat a little bit, you know, it's actually a physical experience of arousal. That's like what I was saying about having an emotional experience together. So, you know, I think everybody should be eating family style, really spicy food. (laughs) I think that would bring us together. I find myself thinking about Peloton and I wonder whether (laughs) Uh might be spread out across the world. So you're not you know, you're not physically connected in any way, but you're all in the same class at the same time. Mm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I, I'm curious if like, does that affect, I don't know if you've studied this or if you looked at the research around this, but does that affect reach to, you know, synchronous, non-geographically located synchronicity? And and then uh, an even harder question is, I do, you know, exercise videos at home mm-hmm. and and those are, you know, they're asynchronous, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm, like the, mm-hmm. the video has already been recorded a long time ago. I'm not doing it at the same time. Does that actually extend the mind from a relationship perspective perceptually? Yeah, well, you know, we are so, as I was saying, so fundamentally social that we can project and imagine a kind of social relationship, you know, with in lots of situations. I even think of that sometimes when I'm, you know, doing the dishes and I turn on NPR, there's, there's the reason I want to do that. The reason I want to beyond wanting to know the news is I want to hear a human voice. You know, that's actually a kind of social connection and that it just speaks to how very deep and fundamental that need is. So I could actually be watching a video working out and actually fall in love with my trainer who I've never seen before. (laughs) And that's like an actual like impact on my mind. That's very interesting. (laughs) I am curious about, uh, and we're going to be wrapping up here, uh, although I don't really want to. So I I think about writing a book, right? And Mm -hmm. I've written a bunch of books. Mm -hmm. And, And it's a very like, like there's lots of ways in which my mind is thinking and reaching out, but it's also a very unextended mind process in some ways. Mm, like mm. I'm sitting here, I'm at my computer, I'm writing. And I'm curious how your writing process 
was impacted by what you're writing about, by your understanding of the extended mind? And did you find that you were in a conversation mm -hmm. with this idea of the extended mind and did it impact mm -hmm. how you wrote this book? Yeah. Oh yeah, very much so. There was that meta conversation going on all throughout writing this book, which was a big ambitious project because I was drawing from a bunch of different disciplines, you know, so many studies, <laughs> so yeah, many interviews. Um, and I say in the book, I don't think I could have pulled it off if not for what I learned during the process of writing the book. Um, and it is, and I think the way, the way you just even described that, it is very much something where you can get lost in an unextended mind. Like, okay, I've mm -hmm. got like, you know, 150 research papers I've got to look mm -hmm. through and I've got to straighten this and I've got to keep everything mm -hmm. in my mind at the same time and I've got to sort things out. So, yes, so yes. Yeah. Well, and I think I, you know, I, I always say that writers write what they need to learn themselves or teach themselves. And yeah. I, I started this project as a very brain bound person. You know, I've been a freelance writer for many years. I work mostly in a solitary way and, and I'm in my head a lot, but I was really persuaded by what I was reading about in the, in all these, this research on the extended mind. So I did apply it and I found it really useful. One of the most transformative um, ideas that I encountered was this idea of cognitive offloading, that we, we do too much inside our heads. And it's actually much more efficient and effective to download, offload the contents of our minds onto physical space, whether that's a big whiteboard or, um, or a multi-monitor setup, you know, with it, with your computer or my own favorite um, post-it notes, which, um, you can move around and manipulate almost as if they're physical objects. And then if you have a big enough space, you're actually kind of physically navigating through it, like as if it's a 3D landscape. So you're bringing in all these embodied resources that remain dormant if it's all just like up here in your head. Interesting. I, you know what, I, I, I was gonna wrap up with that question, but I do have another question. <laughs> and I don't know if you've done any research with this. But I, but my son, I just bought for, for my son, he really wanted it and we're playing with it, an Oculus, right? Which uh -huh. is like virtual reality headset. And I wonder yeah. if like that literally is extending the mind into nothingness, but I really have, you know, I pick up mm -hmm. a gun, I really think I'm shooting someone or mm -hmm. slashing a cube mm -hmm. as it's going by me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm, mm -hmm. and I'm curious of the, you know, like what the relationship is, like everything you're talking about is reality. And yeah. I guess like what we talked about with Peloton is sort of a virtual reality also. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, but I'm mm -hmm. curious if the virtual reality helps to ignite the extension of the brain. Yes, there's so many potentially fruitful connections between the theory of the extended mind and virtual reality. And I've actually, since the book came out, I've heard from a lot of people who are working in, in, v, in uh, VR. But just to give you one example, we were talking earlier about how implicit bias really resides in the body and virtual reality offers an opportunity to correct or um, work with bias in the sense that in virtual reality, you can embody a person of a different race. You can feel that your body is actually has a different skin color. And it turns out that we're so attached to our own bodies. We have such positive feelings about ourselves that as soon as we perceive that we're another race or another gender or or someone who's who's um, differently abled, or has you know, or, or even someone who's who's um, <laughs> there's interesting research that um, people can be made to feel short, um, you know, on a, a, a virtual um, reality subway, and then they have more kind of um, uh, tall people <laughs> have more empathetic feelings towards short people once they've actually embodied a short person. Wow, but, that's um, 
that so that's really the relationship with the body that's the felt experience like extending your mind to a body and giving you an opportunity to experience that's right. so interesting. Sorry, isn't that crazy yeah no no just said we're we're limited in the sense that we're only in real life we only occupy one body and so we only have that one perspective but virtual reality opens it up such that we could have the embodied experience of being all different kinds of people and what could that do in terms of changing our 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 relationship to to other kinds of people right fascinating yeah. We have been talking with Annie Murphy-Paul. Her book is The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. Annie, it's such mm -hmm. a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for writing the book and thank you for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Oh, thank you, Peter. I loved your questions. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast, then you also might enjoy my newest book, You Can Change Other People. You can find it on Amazon or wherever books are sold or by going to bregmanpartners.com forward slash new book. That's one word. If you've already enjoyed the book and found it useful, consider telling a friend or leaving a review on Amazon. Leaving a review helps retailers recommend the book to others just like you. So it's really helpful. Thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next great conversation.